We've come to the midpoint of Ephesians. Consider this halftime. I don't know what you do at halftime of a game. To me, it's always hard, because especially if it's a big game, you kind of get worked up a little bit in the first half, and then you've got to take a break, and then you kind of got to get worked up again in the second half. So we come to halftime here in Ephesians. If you've been with us for a while, you know we've been studying through Ephesians since January, and we have now arrived at the end of chapter 3. That's progress. I think that's good. Ephesians chapter 4, actually, in your Bibles this morning. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 1 is what we'll be looking at. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 1. I think I've probably told you this before, but I'm a little bit of a history nerd. And that's why I enjoyed our vacation so much. We went to Washington, D.C. and Williamsburg and Jamestown and Yorktown. I mean, all the museums and all the history stuff, it was fantastic. The boys kind of just got dragged along as we went. But uh, they read some signs. No, they really did, really did a good job. When I was a kid, I read a, a lot of books on the American War for Independence. That was, my, like, that was my niche of history that I enjoyed. And I revealed something to my wife recently that she did not know about me. She did not know how nerdy I was as a kid, apparently. Because at one point as a child, I actually compiled a spreadsheet of the different battles of the War for Independence with like casualty numbers and who won the war, won the battles and stuff. I know, I'm so embarrassed to even say that right now. That just sounds super nerdy. But it was true. I just, I just stopped doing that last week though, so we're good. <laughs> we're good. One of, one of the most, uh, I, I, I liked the American War for Independence, but honestly one of the most fascinating portions of history to study, and probably one of the most understudied uh, portions by, by most believers uh, as well is uh, church history. If you've ever had the opportunity to look back into church history, the history of the church and the development of the church, both through the end of the, uh, of the book of Acts and the epistles gives us some information, but then on from the early church into now, it's a fascinating study. Starting there in the book of Acts and continuing through the epistles, by A.D. 100, the apostle John, the last apostle of Christ, had died. And so they entered into kind of a new era of church history. It was a challenging time, though, because as time progressed, the apostles had all died, and then as time continued to progress, the ones directly taught by the apostles had died, and so there began this this critical time period of church history, and because some of those, those men so closely associated to the apostles and then the apostles to Christ, because they had passed off, many heresies began to develop that deviated from apostolic teaching. They distorted the doctrine of the Trinity. They distorted the person and the nature of Jesus Christ. One of the most detrimental heresies was propagated by Arius and his followers. A-R-I-U-S, Arius. They proclaimed that Jesus was of a different substance than, than God. He was a created being, therefore he wasn't eternal. And that was a huge deviation from what Jesus said himself and from what the apostles taught about Jesus. So in A.D. 325, the emperor Constantine called a church council meeting. It was called the Council of Nicaea, A.D. 325. And they were going to gather people from different viewpoints and discuss this as a 
church. Arius and his followers, they presented their false beliefs, as we would know them to be. But true orthodox Christianity, orthodox apostolic teaching, was protected at that meeting by a man by the name of Athanasius. Athanasius and his followers, they firmly held true and defended the deity and the eternality of Christ, that Christ was and is God himself. Well, after much debate and discussion at this Council of Nicaea, the biblical truth about the deity of Christ won out. Arius was deposed. He was exiled. And from this council, the Council of Nicaea, came the need to standardize beliefs regarding the doctrine of the Trinity, regarding the nature and work of Christ, regarding the church, to standardize those beliefs and then to communicate those to the world. Remember, at that time, we're talking 325. Communication was a little different then than it is now. Books weren't as prevalent. There weren't as many ways to to standardize something to get that information out into the hands of the people. So out of the Council of Nicaea, a creed came. It's called the Nicene Creed. It was later advanced at the Council of Constantinople in AD 381, and then at the Council of Chalcedon in AD 451, but its roots came from the Council of Nicaea, A.D. 325. Now, the Nicene Creed is is, is incredible. It's a valuable historical statement of faith that has stood the test of time. You realize it's 1,700 years old. 1,700 years old. And the Nicene Creed is an orthodox, it's orthodox belief. It's something that we should hold near and dear to us. It's something that we should think through and, and uh, affirm ourselves to regularly. And I'd like us to do that this morning. I've put it on the screen for us. If you can help me click through it, that would be easier. I'd like us to recite this together. And as we recite it together, please note the high view of God. Note the relationships of the Trinity Note the church's responsibility and relationship to God. There'll be several screens that come up, but if you would, we'll try to go through it slowly. Recite this with me as a statement of faith in God. Here we go. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. 
And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. That is rich, orthodox doctrine. And we need to be reminded of that often. Be reminded of what we believe. That is the faith for 1,700 years. That is the faith being handed down from one generation to the next generation. What we just did there doctrinally is essential. Doctrine is essential to every single believer. Sadly, though, a lot of people don't believe that, do they? You've had those conversations with people. And somebody might come and they might say, oh, I don't really get into doctrine too much. Doctrine divides. I don't want division. Or somebody might say, well, I don't really get into doctrine too much because I'm not a theologian. Or something like this. We don't need doctrine. We just need love. Or something like, let's talk about Jesus, not doctrine. Ever heard this one? No creed but Christ. Which is funny, because that's actually a creed. Statements like that are born out of ignorance. And they are incredibly unhelpful. I want to show you something in today's message here as we reach this pivot point between chapter 3 and chapter 4. And that is this. I want to highlight the essential nature of doctrine. And then also the symmetry that we see between doctrine and devotion. And how our doctrine of what we believe drives our devoted living for Christ. And our devoted living for Christ must stem from what we know to be true in our doctrine. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 1. Our text today is something that I have never done before. One word. The text for today is one word, and that is the word, therefore. In chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I, therefore. Now, I know you've heard it before, and it's a little bit cliche at this point, but we've always been told that whenever you see a therefore in Scripture, you are to ask the question, what is it? What is it there for? Right? If you've never heard that before, that's, that's, remember that. What is it there for? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, this one word, therefore, as it does in many places in Scripture, especially Paul's writing, it acts as a hinge that opens the door to the next portion of Scripture. It, it takes us from one important section of the book to another important section of the book. And what Paul is saying is, because all this is true, and he cracks open the door, he says, therefore, this. Well, so far in Ephesians, if, if you've been with us the whole time we've been in Ephesians, Paul's main theme has been, in the first three chapters, doctrine. Some heavy doctrine, right? Some doctrine that, that Paul has hammered out these key doctrines of the faith in the forge of truth, right? He's been banging away in his blacksmith shop on these doctrines so that we would understand what they are. Let me give you a little bit of a recap so we know where we are headed. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, he teaches theology proper. 
the doctrine of God by explaining God's sovereignty throughout all time. In Ephesians 1.7, he teaches Christology by explaining Christ's work of redemption for us. In him, we have redemption through his blood. In Ephesians 1.13 and 14, he teaches pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, by explaining that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is the seal which God has given to us for the eternal security of our salvation. In Ephesians 1 and 2, he teaches ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, by explaining that the church is both the body of Christ and it is the building of Christ. It is the dwelling place of God here on earth. In Ephesians 2, 1 and 3, he teaches anthropology, the doctrine of mankind, by explaining the nature of mankind apart from grace, that we are sinners, dead in our sins. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, he teaches soteriology. That's the doctrine of salvation. He explains that God's salvation is only by God's grace through faith. In Ephesians 2 and 3, he teaches ecclesiology by explaining how Jews and Gentiles have become one. Where? In the church. In Ephesians 3, 16 to 21, we just saw this last week, he teaches theology proper again by highlighting the glory of God in prayer when he says, now to him be glory, where? In the church. Throughout all generations, forever and ever. So he goes through all of this in chapters 1 to 3, and then he says, chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore. Because of all that, now this. The structure of chapters 4 through 6 is built on the foundation of chapters 1 to 3. And at this hinge of therefore, in chapter 4, verse 1, we move from doctrine to devotion. From doctrine, last week we also saw doxology there at the end of chapter 3. So from doctrine through doxology, which is praise to God, now to devoted living for Christ. Doctrine to devotion. Let, let me give you a, a bunch of different ways that you could think through this, and maybe, maybe a couple of them will stick for you. Everybody has a different way of, of understanding something. So we could say it's from doctrine to devotion. We could say that chapter 3 goes to chapter 4, and that it shows us our riches in Christ in chapters 1 to 3. And now we see in chapters 4 to 6 our responsibilities in Christ. So from riches in Christ to responsibilities. He shows us, he takes us from who we are to now what we are to do. He shows us what God has done in chapters 1 to 3. Now he shows what we are supposed to do. He takes us from orthodoxy, that's right thinking, right doctrine. He takes us from orthodoxy to orthopraxy, that's right practice. He takes us from principle to practical, from right thinking to right living, from belief to behavior. At this hinge of therefore, Chuck Swindoll is helpful. He says that it's now time, in chapter th between chapter 3 and 4, he says it's now time to move from the classroom to the laboratory. From the classroom to the laboratory. You know what you do in the classroom? You learn the material. You read the books. He explains it to you. But then you go into the laboratory to do what? To put it into practice. To utilize it. You say, well, I flunked out in, uh, in science, so that doesn't connect with me at all. Maybe you're a sports person. It's time to go from the locker room where the coach tells you what to do to where? To the court. Where now you've got to go put it into practice, right? 
You say, well, that doesn't connect with me either. Okay, maybe it's time to go from the grocery store where you get all the ingredients to the kitchen where you what? You use all the ingredients. That's what Paul's doing here in this hinge. But whatever your favorite analogy is, we're moving from doctrine, from what we are to now what we are to do, that devoted living for Christ. You will have no ability to do what is right if you do not know what is right, right? He has built this whole argument, and everything he tells us to do in chapters 4 through 6 will be based off of chapters 1 to 3. Warren Wearsby, who has just a way of putting words together, says it this way. He says, the better we understand Bible doctrine, the easier it is to obey Bible duties. So Bible doctrine, understanding of that, leads us then to Bible duties. Let me show you some examples of this. One of them comes up right in verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. What question should we ask if we're studying through that? Walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. We should ask the question, what's the calling? What calling? Oh, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. That's doctrine. Just, just walk worthy. Just, just do it. No, we should ask that question. And where will that question point us? It'll point us back into chapters 1 to 3. Because what did Paul do in chapter 1? He went through the calling to salvation that God has given to us. And now he says, walk worthy of that calling. How can we walk worthy of a calling if we don't know what the calling is? So he's explained it to us. Behavior, therefore, is pushed by belief. In chapter 4, verse 17, down, through, down into chapter 5 in Ephesians, he, Paul reminds us that we are to put off our old grave clothes. We are to, to get rid of the old man. Why? Why? How? Can we do that? Yes, because Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 4 to 7 says, we have been raised from the dead by Christ. Therefore, since you have been raised from the dead, put off that old nasty deadness. Put off that grave clothes, those grave clothes. Chapter 5, verse 18 through chapter 6 shows us that we are to walk in harmony with one another. He talks about husbands and wives and children, and he talks about employers and employees. He says we are to walk in harmony with one another. Why? How? Because in chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, he already gave us the example that we have been reconciled to God. Therefore, we are reconciled to each other. Even Jews and Gentiles, those warring groups of people, can now work in harmony with one another, can live in harmony with one another because of what God has done. Sound doctrine should always cause solid devotion. And solid devotion should always prove sound doctrine. You cannot have one without the other. You will not have one without the other. Sound doctrine will lead you to solid devotion. In one of my seminary classes, and I don't know who said this, so I can't give credit, but, it, but I had it written down. He said this, Beware equally of an untheological devotion and of an undevotional theology. Beware equally of an untheological devotion and of an undevotional theology. See, here it is, doing, doing things, 
Doing that is not rooted in sound doctrine will be motion without mission. We're doing a lot, having a clue what we're doing it for. But sound doctrine that does not result in doing will be mission without motion. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I just don't do it. We must have both mission and motion. We must move from the classroom to the laboratory so that our knowledge of something becomes experience with something. And we all know that what? When we experience it, we learn it, don't we? It gets rooted into our souls. It connects with us a little bit better. That's a pattern we see throughout Scripture. This is not just true in Ephesians, especially in the writings of Paul. He does this many times. I'll show you a few examples. If you want to turn there, you can. We won't be at each place very long. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through chapter 4, verse 5, the Apostle Paul writes about the Word of God. And he gives us just these incredible statements about God's Word, that the Word makes us wise for salvation. That the word is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. He tells us in verse 17 that the word makes the man of God thoroughly equipped. Because all that is true, what then does he tell Timothy? In chapter 4, verse 2, he says, preach the word. Because this is true about the word, therefore use the word, trust the word, preach the word. In the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1 and 2, you see this incredible, these incredible statements about the doctrines of Christ, of his deity, of who he is. And he calls us to believe in those doctrines. And then in chapter 3, you know what he does? He talks about the Christian home, what the Christian home is to look like fathers and husbands and mothers and wives and children, and he goes into employers and employees and and working for the Lord. And he talks about what the, guess what? You can have no Christian home without right beliefs about Christ. Don't come along and tell me, oh, we've got a good, solid Christian home. Doctrine, oh, we're not too worried about that. You can't have a Christian home without right beliefs, without good doctrine about Christ. The one you say your home is built off of. Then the book of Romans, if you would, go to our scripture reading, Romans 11, where we were earlier for scripture reading, Romans 11. This is probably the best example of this. Probably the best example of doctrine-driving devotion is here in Romans. Romans is a much bigger book than Ephesians, and for the first 11 chapters... Paul does a deep dive on the doctrines of salvation. I mean, he goes way down into some stuff, some tough stuff. Remember the Romans road? We've talked about that before. You see, you know, for all have sinned, and and the wages of sin is death, and and no one can come. Uh, uh, Every man is a sinner on their own. No one can come to God. And then there's the call to believe in Christ. You see justification by faith alone in Romans. You see that in Christ we are free from sin. You see the sovereignty of God and salvation. You see that the law is insufficient, but Christ is sufficient. It goes through this whole 11 chapters of the doctrine of salvation. Then, as we saw in our scripture reading, verses 33 through 36 of chapter 11 is doxology. Praise of God. To him and of him and through him are all things. To him be glory forever. 
And then he pivots here. He hinges again. And notice chapter 12, verse 1. What word shows up? I beseech you, therefore. Because of all that, Paul says, now this. And you know what he does the rest of Romans? Chapter 12, we read it this morning. He covers general Christian behavior. Because you call yourself in Christ, this is how then you should live. In chapter 13, he talks about the Christian's response to government. In chapter 14, he talks about living in Christian freedom. In chapter 15, he talks about bearing one another's burdens. He's saying, folks, you can't do that unless you understand who you are in Christ. Doctrine, scripture always communicates that doctrine, it communicates a progression from information to application. A.W. Tozer says, it is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. If we would bring back spiritual power to our lives, we must begin to think of God more nearly as he is. If we want spiritual power in our lives, we cannot just go straight to getting the power. We must go to understanding who God is. Doctrine must drive devotion. I want to show you some practical examples of this, hopefully. Practical and personal examples of this, this principle of, of belief-driving behavior. First, a couple examples that aren't so good, and then some that are hopefully helpful to you. First off, let's do a brief cultural assessment. I think every person that you ask, if you were to go out into town, every single person that you ask, they would say that they want to live in a better world. Probably. A safer world, a kinder world, a more flourishing world. I think everyone would say that. I think every person would also say, we don't have that right now, right? There's a lot of arguing, a lot of violence, a lot of distrust and anger and crime and fear. Here's the problem. The world wants a better world, granted. The world wants a better world, but nothing they do works to get it. Nothing. Everyone wants to solve the opioid crisis and and gun violence and human trafficking and AIDS, but no one can seem to do it. Pundits talk about it. You turn on any news channel you want and they talk about it forever. No solutions, though. Sociologists write about it. Politicians, especially around elections, will wax on and on about how their method and how what they're going to do is going to solve the problem. But it never does. Nobody solves the problem. Why? Why? Because the principle of belief-driving behavior will always be true. The world insists on trying to get good output with rotten input. You follow me? The world insists on trying to get good output, good behavior, with rotten input, with rotten belief. And guess what? You cannot have it both ways. You just can't. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot input into people that they are an accidentally evolved nothingness with no real purpose, and then wonder why they struggle with identity and with loneliness, and with all sorts of other problems. You can't have it both ways. 
You can't input into people a sexual revolution that declares sexual exploration as a supreme good and then wonder why AIDS and sex trafficking are so rampant. You can't do it. You can't input the glorification of violence in media and gaming and then bemoan the output of gun violence and crime in the streets. You can't have it both ways. The output will never change until the input changes. A rat smells like a rat because it is a rat. The world wants good behavior, but it builds it on rotten beliefs, and they will not get it. They will not get it. There's a statement in sports that goes like this. The ball don't lie. The ball don't lie. In golf, right, Ron? The ball goes where you hit it every time. You say, but it hit that tree. It's because you told it to hit that tree. You didn't intend to, maybe, but exactly what you input into that golf ball, it did. In basketball, if you can't make a three, it isn't the ball's fault. It isn't. The ball goes exactly where you shoot it. If your cake tastes like nutmeg, it's because you put nutmeg in the cake right? You can't have it both ways. For the world, the beliefs are wrong, therefore the behavior is wrong. Now, does that same principle apply to us as believers? Absolutely. The same principle, it's not just true with unbelievers, it is also true with believers. Therefore, we as believers must be very careful what our doctrinal input is, because it will in large part determine what our output is. So therefore, as believers, we need the word, right? The truth of God's word. We need the spirit filling our soul, renewing our minds, engaging our actions so that we then produce what? The fruits of righteousness, the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. That's the output when the input is the word and the spirit, that's important for us to, to think of. Why do we do what we do? Anything, anything at all in your entire life, why do you do what you do? Because of what you believe. You brush your teeth because you believe that that's a good way to take care of your teeth. Therefore, you do it. Hopefully. Everything you do is rooted in the belief that at that moment, it is the right thing to do. And that's true spiritually as well. Output and input, doctrine and devotion. Think about it. Why do we live lives of holiness as believers? Why do we live lives of holiness? 1 Peter 1.16. God says, be ye holy, for I am holy. So our belief that God is holy should drive us to then be holy as he is holy. Our desire for holiness is rooted in the belief that God is holy and that we want to live lives pleasing to him. Why do we pray? Why do we pray? Because, I hope, because we believe God's sovereign power is at work 
And through prayer, we want to align ourselves with his sovereign will so that he takes us in the direction he wants us to go and we don't run off into our own way. What is that rooted in? A belief that God is powerful. Why do I preach? Because I believe that God has revealed himself through his word and that through his word, we can know God. And that through his word, people come to the knowledge of salvation. And God works. So I don't, I don't just do this because it's something I, I, I mean, I like doing it, but it's not, that's not the reason. There's a belief behind this. There's a passion here that this is what matters. Therefore, we act on it. Why do we fight against abortion in our culture? Because we believe that every human life, regardless of status, is sacred. That every human life is made in the image of God and is fearfully and wonderfully made. See, politics doesn't drive me to that conclusion. My Bible drives me to that conclusion. I believe that, therefore I act on it. Why do we have a Christian school? Because we believe a Christian biblical worldview based on the gospel of Jesus Christ will make a powerful impact in the hearts and lives of kids and families. There's a belief there that this is something that we need to do. Why do we evangelize? Because we believe Christ commands it. We believe God is still at work in the hearts of people to save them. We believe, as it says in Hebrews 7.25, that Jesus Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Then it should drive your behavior. It should drive your evangelism. We believe that there is no other way of salvation than through Christ. That's why we tell people about Christ. Our belief pushes our behavior. It pushes what we do. I hope you see this morning this this hinge point in Ephesians. You see that therefore is, is not a nothing word. It's there for a reason. And we started today, if you remember, we started with doctrine. We recited the Nicene Creed. Just a terrific statement of what we believe about the Trinity, about the church, about eternity. Well, I want us to end today by reciting something else. Because I want you to see this principle in action. Because of the belief in the doctrines of the faith, we then are called and encouraged to, therefore, behave in a way that pleases the Lord. At the end of May, as a church here, we adopted a new church membership covenant. The church membership covenant itself is not necessarily a statement of faith. It's a statement of Christian behavior. But it all comes from what? What we believe about the Christian faith. It is firmly rooted in our belief. In Ephesians, Paul gives us that that example, principle leading to practice, belief moving us to behavior. And so I want to illustrate that for you today. We started with the Nicene Creed, we believe. We're going to end this morning with the church membership covenant, basically saying we behave now a certain way. And so I invite you, there's going to be a couple different groups of people here, If you are a member of Wayside Chapel, I invite you to stand.
Because you as a member of Wayside Chapel have, have put yourself under this church membership covenant and said, that is how I am going to behave as a member of this church. So if you're a member of Wayside Chapel, I invite you to stand. And I would ask you, based on our beliefs then, to commit yourself to this covenant of behavior. You say, well, I'm not a member of the church. I understand. Follow along with us. Because what you see recited here is a good reminder for all of us. If you can click that ahead for us and keep clicking as we go through this. Would you as a member of Wayside Chapel, because of our belief, commit yourself to this as your behavior in the body of Christ? Let's recite it together. Reading. Having been led as we believe by divine grace through the Spirit of God to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and give ourselves to him. And having been baptized on the profession of our faith, we do now in the presence of God and relying on his grace, most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. We will, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, as members of a Christian church, walk together in brotherly love, as Scripture commands. We will work and pray to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We will remember each other in prayer, aid each other in sickness and distress, cultivate Christian sympathy in spirit and courtesy in speech, be slow to take offense, and always be ready to reconcile our differences in a timely manner as Christ has commanded. We will seek to win souls, both corporately and individually, to salvation in Jesus Christ, and to communicate spiritual instruction to those God has placed under our care. We will strive for the advancement of this church by working to sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrine. We will attend consistently, participate willingly, and contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the church and expenses of this ministry, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel worldwide. We will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, and remembering that, as we have been buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, so we now have a special obligation to lead a new and holy life. We moreover intend that when we remove from this place, we will, as soon as possible, unite with some other church, where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit enable each of us to fulfill this covenant. You may be seated. That's not just something you say. It's something you say because it's built on what you believe. Let's pray.